Hello and welcome back to Fellowship of the Research podcast. I am Megan Ward. And I'm Sasha Neuer. And we are so excited that you're joining us for our third guest episode. Hopefully you've been enjoying the podcast so far. We wanted to let you know that we are officially setting up a schedule to release the podcasts on Mondays. If you're interested in following along on Instagram or Twitter, or if you want to email us to potentially be another guest on the podcast, please check out our show notes because all of the links and contact information will be posted there for you. So Megan, anything exciting over the last week that you want to talk about? Well, not necessarily anything relating to grad studies, but I did hear that four UFOs have been shot down over Canada recently. I heard about this on the radio this morning. I heard that there's a few coming in over the Yukon and one over Lake Superior. So a variety of different angles we're seeing these UFOs come in. Interesting. And also I saw a video last night that Russia is sending belugas apparently to spy on people like so, the whale yeah like the whale it had this harness on it that said property of russia you know what if a beluga wants to spy on me and i get to look at it that's a fair trade yeah i feel like i would accept that yeah. you're right <laughs> now that we have you super excited about ufos and potentially alien activity we're going to take a jump to the past and talk about isotope analysis in teeth from 200 year old bodies with our guest today alexis perfect <laughs> Welcome, Alexis. We are so excited to have you here today. Do you want to take a minute and introduce yourself? My name is Alexis Rauch. I am actually an American international graduate student here at Trent. I am in the anthropology graduate program. It's my first year here. Where in America are you from? Ohio, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Why unfortunately? Ohio has very few things going for it. We got like Cedar Point, that's about it. Okay, Smasha is back with some fun facts about Ohio. People have been in Ohio for at least 13,000 years thanks to some ground sloth bones that were marked by human tools. In addition, did you know that Ohio is the birthplace of Superman? There. Ohio does have at least a few more things going for it. Have you ever been on a podcast before? I have not. First time. Well, we're very excited that your first time's with us. Yeah. (laughs) When you're not focusing on grad school, which, you know, we sort of recognize is most of the time, what are some other things that catches your interest? Do you have any other hobbies? Big fan of D&D. So yeah, I I play lots of D&D. I also make my own dice. Okay, I have to ask, what's your favorite character to play? Currently, I am playing a a wild magic sorcerer. She's an 87-year-old grandma who used to be in a circus. Oh my gosh, I'm so distracted by that. That was so cool. Okay. (laughs) Can you give us a bit of information on your research history. So what did you do pre-grad school that brought you here? I did a another anthropology undergraduate degree at Grand Valley State University, which is in West Michigan. I did a museum studies project where I designed some digital panels for the Grand Rapids archives. I analyzed a full skeleton and found out she was very tiny and had a very poor life and was used in initiation rituals after she died. Oh my god. That is like gruesome, but also so interesting. Yeah. 
she was stolen from her grave, likely in India, in the 1800s, assembled as a medical skeleton, sold to this society called the Odd Fellows to be used in initiation rituals, and then donated to the university in like the 60s. Do I want to know what they did with her during the initiation rituals? It was essentially, they're very secretive, but from what I could tell, it was this initiation ritual where if you want to help promote life, you have to face death. You walk in or confronted with a skeleton. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Again, I am not exactly certain on how that goes, because they try to keep that, like, hush-hush. It's interesting that it's a woman of color, because I feel like Mm -hmm. that's probably a theme you see a lot in anthropology, where that particular group of people is used against their will, basically. Especially there was a big grave-robbing industry in India. Lots of medical skeletons, especially during that time, were taken from that area, specifically. It was more of, like, a the-other-way sort of thing. It's interesting it's based out of India, because when I think of India, I think of Hinduism. And of course, they usually cremate the bodies. So Mm -hmm. where is this body farm in India that they were getting the bodies from? That I'm not precisely sure. I do know that she led a very hard life. Like she was probably mid Mm thirties, but had the arthritis of an old person. Multiple fractures. She had a crushed leg. She had so many like cavities. It's so interesting. You can see all of that from a skeleton. And I mean, Mm -hmm. we're going to chat a little bit more about this in the research segment of this episode but so interesting that you can see so many like small details of someone's life just from what they leave behind Mm -hmm. so before we jump into the nitty-gritty of your research what has been the best part of grad school so far i would say honestly coming into a very social integrated lab the trent environmental archaeology lab the teal lab we have our own tiktok we have (laughs) all of these like social events we all hang out together so i came to an entirely new country and did not feel alone which was fantastic i hear a big critique about grad school often is that it is a lonely experience Mm -hmm. and so it's great that that is not something that you have experienced at all so far I am working with ASI, Archaeological Services, Inc., and they were contracted to check out a alley at Kingston Hospital to see if there were any burials there because there was a history of Irish immigrants from the Great Potato Famine being deposited in this large mass grave on their grounds. They were fleeing the famine, and because of the long ship journey, they would contract typhus and weren't able to last, and because there were so many of these immigrants, the hospitals couldn't support how many patients there were so they had to put them somewhere so there was a mass grave on their grounds so when they were uncovering this alley they found about 55 individuals even though the preservation of the bodies isn't great we do have a large number of their teeth so i am going to be analyzing their teeth for carbon, nitrogen, sulfur, and strontium stable isotopes which will tell me about their diet and where they came from Mm. 
So Alexis, can you tell us a bit about the program you're in and what year you're in? I'm a first year master's student in the anthropology graduate program. My supervisor is Dr. Paul Spock. He's the leader of the Teal Lab and does all sorts of things. Lots of like methodological studies on stable isotope analysis. He's a Canada research chair. He's now the director of the graduate department for anthropology. He does all sorts of things and is in so many publications. So I'm very excited to work with him. Let's jump back in time a little bit just so all of our listeners are sort of on the same page. What caused the potato famine in 1845? Essentially prior to 1845 there were mainly two types of diseases that could infect potatoes before that and then the one that caused the major blight during the Great Potato Famine was brought over and quickly infected all of the potatoes which normally wouldn't be an issue if it's like you have a whole bunch of different varieties of potatoes or that sort of thing but a lot of the the people in Ireland were renting out their land to grow potatoes which would be able to occupy a very small space of land and would provide the nutritional value that they could based on minimal space. So this blight would infect all of their potatoes, which was essentially most of their diet. So they didn't really have anything to eat. <laughs> I had no idea the potato famine was caused by disease. I figured it was an environmental impact. Yeah, it was mainly potato blight and the fact that the landlords weren't around. It was essentially there would be one person who owned the land, a middleman, and then the people who were actually farming on the land. So how many people had to leave Ireland? If there's no food, obviously they had to leave, but where did all these people People go. Based on what I have seen, they were leaving like the millions. It was one of the single largest events that caused people to leave Ireland. A lot of them went to North America if they could afford it. Canada wasn't able to close its ports to Irish ships. So when Canadians would send over lumber, all of the immigrants would go into the empty lumber holds and then go back. So it was a cheap way to escape Ireland. So they weren't necessarily trying to import anything from Ireland, but they needed their ships back. Mm -hmm. Some other people, if they were more poor, they would go to Britain. And I think there were some that went to Australia as well. So you mentioned that typhus played a role in the immigration of people from Ireland. So what is typhus and how does it affect a person's health? Typhus is a specific type of bacterial infection, and especially when there was a lot of people in cramped quarters in ships that were up to, you know, health codes and were cramming into these lumberyard storage spots in ships, there would be a lot of disease that was spreading throughout. So typhus, some of the common symptoms are fever, headache, rash. A lot of these people were also weakened from the famine already, so any sort of disease isn't really going to help things. Right, if you're already malnourished and weakened, then even something that for someone who's really healthy may not affect you that much. For these people, it could cause a lot of them to die. I'm waiting on my samples from the ancient DNA people. So I'm going to be collaborating with some people who are going to be looking at the type of pathogens or diseases that these people had. So they're going to confirm that they have typhus. They're going to be looking at identifying rickettsia on the remains. You said you got the teeth in your samples from these mass graves. Can you tell us a little bit more about what these graves looked like and where they were located? A lot of them were lined up. We could tell that they were in coffins. We did find some coffin nails. A lot of these individuals are actually children. There's a couple of infants. My samples are going to be individuals aged roughly between 3 and 17. They're all lined up. You could tell that they were just placed one right next to the other, cramped into this mass grave. Some of them, you only had like a couple ribs and some teeth. There wasn't a lot of preservation. Some of the individuals are more complete than others, but even then, there's not a whole lot. What would cause the discrepancy in some individuals having all their bones there and some not? Like, Would it be like scavenging from animals? Because they were buried initially in coffins, 
happens that gets rid of some of that. There might be some bugs and stuff that burrow into there, but it's not going to be like any large animals gnawing on them. But it's very waterlogged soil, and a lot of times there's specific types of preservation that can preserve bodies better than others. Temperate and wet is usually very bad, and that's where they're at here. A lot of the mass grave has actually already been plowed through from past renovations, and before there was legislature protecting that sort of thing. They want to redevelop this alley and construct there, but they have to make sure that there's nothing archaeologically significant there first. When I picture an alley, I picture a small strip between two buildings. So were these people just buried between buildings or were they buried out in a field somewhere? They were buried on the Kingston grounds, but I'm pretty sure that based on what I understand, some of these buildings have already been put on top of where the grass grave was. At one point when they were building, they were literally just like cutting through bodies. Not good. Later, they would dig them up and move them. And that was like some of the later renovations. So at this point, a decent amount of the mass grave has been destroyed. This has been an undisturbed portion. So these are 50 individuals of what could have been many, many more. Oh, they estimated that there was like 1,400 individuals in this mass grave. 1,400. Wow. wow. In yeah. one mass grave. And mm-hmm. that's just in the Kingston. So it, Just knows? in Kingston. The 1847 North American typhus epidemic was just all of the Irish immigrants coming over over crossing the Atlantic in very poor conditions. So roughly 20,000 people died across Canada. Kingston alone was roughly 1,400. So if these graves that have now been excavated date back to the mid-1800s, wouldn't the bodies of the people buried there be severely decayed by now? How are you still able to learn things from them? There is no soft tissue anymore. That's all gone. There are certain parts of the body that will preserve better than others, so primarily bone, and then certain bones have different structural integrity. So in particular, teeth are a lot likely to last even more than bone. So not all bone will last the same amount, like teeth specifically, you'll be able to find. The structure of the outside of your teeth, so like the enamel, has like larger crystals and is less likely to decay than other things. And so you have these teeth, how do you look at them to learn things? Essentially, I'm going to be looking at the elements that are incorporated into your remains based on what you've been eating. Most living organisms, all living organisms, have carbon. If you're interested in learning more about carbon and how it cycles through waterways, forests, and the atmosphere, I strongly encourage you to check out episode two with Erin Matula. When you eat something that has carbon in it, that will be incorporated into your tissue. So you are what you eat. Say, for example, someone is eating this certain type of plant. You can kind of tell what types of plants they're eating based on what their carbon is in their teeth. C3 plants, for example, in this case would be potatoes. Potatoes, boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. I can see if they're eating more potatoes versus a C4 plant, which would be corn. For these individuals, I'll actually be able to tell if they were eating imported American corn or if they're eating just potatoes. That is incredibly detailed information to get from a tooth. And that's just one isotope system. Nitrogen mainly tells you like the trophic level of the things that you're eating. So if you eat a lot more meat, there's going to be a higher nitrogen value. And even then, like if you're eating a lot of marine resources, there's more trophic levels or food chain levels in the ocean. So you'll see even higher levels. So we can see if they're eating a lot of meat or not so much. There are two isotopes for nitrogen. So the regular nitrogen, which has seven neutrons in addition to electrons and protons. However, occasionally a nitrogen atom will gain a neutron and so it will become slightly heavier. And so we call these two variations of nitrogen 
isotopes. Basically, this lighter nitrogen, the one that has the seven neutrons, is much more reactive. It's easily excreted versus nitrogen 15 is a little bit heavier and it's not quite as reactive. And so it actually accumulates in the body. And so when you start off with a small animal like a zooplankton, it might not have a lot of nitrogen 15, but that zooplankton is eaten by small fish, which are eaten by large fish, which are eaten by even bigger fish, which are eaten by humans. And we find as we move up the trophic levels, the proportion of the heavier nitrogen increases because you accumulate all of the nitrogen of the organisms that you eat, meaning that if you consume animals that have in turn consumed a lot of other animals, you'll end up with a very high proportion of nitrogen 15. And then there's also been some studies that when you are depleted in nutritional resources, that there may be an opposing covariance, which essentially means that the carbon will go down and the nitrogen will go up in individuals that are experiencing famine. So I want to see if that's something that shows up in my individuals because it's not something that's completely confirmed. But essentially that argument is because you're not taking in as many things, you'll be using up your fat stores, which will have different values in the actual food that you're eating. Because these people all died from typhus, you can assume that they ate very little food here in Canada. So basically all the food that you're seeing would be food digested in Ireland before Mm -hmm. they arrived. Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially teeth are very specific. A lot of times when they form, they will form either in utero or throughout childhood and then they do not remodel. So a lot of your bones, like your skin is constantly like you're losing cells and replacing cells. That happens in bone, but more slowly but once your teeth form that's kind of how they are which is why your teeth would wear down and not fix themselves so is that why you're interested in studying ages 3 to 17 like do adolescents and young adults tell you more information that's more of a blessing in disguise i did not choose what's there and that is the graves that had teeth so it's generally younger individuals but that will also mean that i can see the diet closer to the time period that i'm interested in looking at depending on when the tooth forms i can see different time periods and would most of the adults have lost their teeth because of this long famine or is this just again an artifact of where they happen to have been buried. It's more, I don't think there's that many adults there. And it just kind of depends on what preserves. There was a lot of children in this area. And it could also be some of the soil is different in different areas. I wasn't there at the excavation specifically. So I'm just going to be getting samples from ASI. Is there a reason why there were so many more children than adults at this location? I do not know, but that is actually something I'm going to be looking at. One of the goals that I have for my project, I will be looking at sulfur and strontium isotopes, which... Sulfur will tell you the water conditions of the plants that were grown in that area, and then you incorporate that into your body. For Ireland specifically, there's a main sea spray effect that goes from west to east across the island. It's just a consistent, very convenient (laughs) swipe of ocean water that goes across the island. So I can see a very clean gradient on one side, where strontium will tell you there's different areas that have like different bedrock signatures. So like this number will correspond to this area, where this number will correspond to this area. So I have two different maps of Ireland that have different layouts. Using both of these, I'm hoping to pinpoint where they came from. And doing that, I want to do some historical research and see why they might have come from there. Right. 
That's amazing that you can tell all of that from one tooth. Well, really, and not even just the tooth, the elements that make up the teeth. That's just incredible. Even some of the other individuals in the lab, they're able to tell whether these animals were local or traded or there's an individual in our lab who is identifying that Inuits were hunting larger and larger seals and are thinking that maybe they're including different hunting locations just based on the seals that they were eating like it's incredible that you can look at such minute details and get an idea of like sea spray from an ocean and like bedrock signatures and all these kind of things that I wouldn't think relate to archaeology or anthropology like all these different environmental factors that obviously clearly play a role in the whole analysis and understanding of the history of these peoples I think that's incredible so you may be able to track the roots of these individuals that they took on their trek from Ireland to Canada almost 200 years ago just from their teeth is there anything else that you use or it really is just teeth that you're looking at It's mainly going to be teeth. I'm going to be dividing it into two sections of the tooth. So it'll be the outside enamel, which is a lot denser and is less likely to incorporate like some of the local water that was in the soil there. So it's going to respond more to products being incorporated into the enamel instead of any sort of contaminants. And then I'll be looking at the inside of the tooth, which is the dentin, which will have more collagen, which is like the protein in your bone. That leads us to our final question of the research segment, which is what is the overall goal of your master's work? My overall goal is to identify mainly where these individuals came from. I'll have to figure out their diet just to make sure that there's no, like if I include corn, Mm -hmm. then there's a chance that could disrupt where the signature is from because it'll incorporate the values of the corn instead of the potatoes, which are local. So overall, I want to identify where these individuals came from and why they might have left that location specifically. Now that we have learned all about what you can do with a set of teeth or even one individual tooth, let's chat about Lord of the Rings. So who is your favorite Lord of the Rings character and why? I would say Bilbo's a vibe. You know, Hobbit culture is definitely very appealing to me. It's it's this small man who wants to live in his hole with all of his comforts. (laughs) And then there's all these people that come into his house and he's like, what's going on? And then it's like, you know what? Sure, I'm gonna go with these people. It, it speaks to like my, I, I like my comfort zone, but also my impulsive side. I'm like, I'm gonna move to Canada. Yeah, that's completely fine. You were born to the rolling hills and little rivers of the Shire. But home is now behind you. The world is ahead. Okay, so... Very appropriately, as you were saying, Bilbo's adventure starts in the Shire, but he does step out of his comfort zone and quickly learns to appreciate all the other land in Middle-earth. Can you maybe describe a time in grad school that forced you out of your comfort zone and what you learned from it? Moving to Canada is a big one. I was forcing myself to leave the country and involve myself in this brand new community of which I know not much. I have a Bachelor of Arts and I'm now pursuing a Master's of Science. So there's a lot of things I'm getting used to there. My lab mates are very helpful, which is great. But just learning everything in the lab is brand new to me. But I feel a lot more confident. I am a lot more social, which is very odd. In undergrad, I would shelter myself in my apartment. I just lived with one friend and I did not go out very much. And now I'm a 
lot more social. What brought you to Canada? Why did you end up leaving the States? Mainly the fact that there is such a good lab at Trent. There's not many archaeology labs that have all of this equipment at their disposal. A lot of times, especially for stable isotope analysis, people are borrowing machines from the geology department or my advisor in undergrad would drive from Michigan to Illinois, so like four or five hour drive to go use their machine, wow. whereas we have everything on campus that is at our disposal whenever we want. And also the funding's great, I'm not gonna complain. <laughs> Having good funding and like reliable resources makes such a difference in grad school. Especially so. for archaeology, there's not a lot of funding, especially in the States. Like the fact that you have government funding that I can apply for as an international student, I don't have this from my own government. <laughs> so Bilbo has a team of dwarfs and of course Gandalf who help him on his journey. In your grad school adventure, who are a few members of your team? So I have the lab here, obviously, who are all fantastic. And then I also have some friends back home, a recent partner. It's honestly great, especially when I can do lab work and call someone at the same time. Like I was weighing out samples and called my grandma the other day. Lots of, lots of people. I have my local support and my distance support, which is That's fantastic. Awesome. Grad school, I mean, we've said this, I think every episode is an adventure and having a team of people who help you get through is what makes or breaks a lot of students. So I'm glad oh, that yeah. you have a variety of different support systems. So Bilbo has Sting, which is a sword that glows blue when orcs are near, which saves saves him many times. Is there something in your life that saved you during grad school? Cheesy thing to say would be the support systems. But if we're being real, OMG is fantastic. Shawarma. They are the best shawarma place in town. Yes. I don't know, I have to kind of rep Ariana's. That's I just have to put that in there oh. because if I didn't say it, I would regret it. Maybe we'll make this a poll. Ariana's or OMG's for this episode. Yeah. I'm new and have not tried Ariana's yet, so. Okay, highly recommend it. Okay. We can go one time, I'll tell you what to get. <laughs> also, there's a cat chat for my lab and there's just people send pictures of their cats. And like, I will go and visit my friend and just play with her cats. One of them is named Gimli. The other one's Ducky. I love them both. Just as mm -hmm. a fun wrap-up question, what's your favorite way to eat potatoes? Do you boil them, mash them, or stick them in a stew? Probably pretty American of me. Cheese fries. <laughs> So if the listeners should remember one thing from today's episode, what would it be? Bones are not scary. Bones are cool. That should be a sticker. I also do lots of art on the side. So if anyone has any like archaeology sticker suggestions, I do have a red bubble. On this note, where can listeners contact you if they're interested in connecting with you or if they want to learn more or if they want to look up your art? Give us some links to work with here. The best way would probably be either email or Instagram. And then my red bubble is Swanky Tim. Perfect. Well, thank you so much Alexis this has been amazing I don't think we could have said cool more times <laughs> <laughs> And with that, we are wrapping up our third episode of Fellowship of the Research podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to our guest, Alexis. You were amazing. And it was so interesting to hear about your research. We also wanted to shout out Sadler House for hosting us and setting us up with our recording studio. And as always, you shall pass. He <laughs> 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 <laughs>
pronouns are funny sometimes. Um, there's nothing different with these pronouns. It's just nervous. That is so incredible. I feel like I've said that a thousand times. I'm just so impressed. <laughs> I know this is such a do. cool project. This is such a cool interview. Oh my god. Okay. Anthropology is so freaking cool. <laughs> yeah, in my undergrad, I was like, oh, I think I might do numismatics, so like coins. I'm like, maybe I'll do museum studies. And then my professor is like, these are what stable isotopes are. I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> and you were totally set. Oh, yeah. I'm like, okay, I want to do science. Yeah.